Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the sixth episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing the Anglo-Irish War. The Anglo-Irish War began on July 21st, 1919, and it ended in a truce between the British and Irish forces on July 11th, 1921. It is so monumental for Irish history as well as asymmetrical warfare history that you can't do it justice with just one episode. I've decided to break it out into three different episodes, one for each year of the war. I did this because I wanted to provide a solid foundation so that way In my later episodes, when I go into more depth about some of the certain tactics that the Irish used or certain aspects of the war, my listeners would have a a strong foundation to build from. It should be noted that 1919 is considered the quiet period of the Anglo-Irish War because the types of attacks that we associate with this conflict, such as Bloody Sunday, the tit-for-tat assassinations and murders, the use of hunter strikes, like in mass use of hunter strikes, that doesn't really happen until the 1920s. 1919, I think, gets overlooked a little bit because it's just not as bloody. And the reason why that is, is because 1919, both the IRA, the Doyle, and the British are trying to figure out what the hell is actually happening and what they can and cannot do. The Anglo-Irish War starts on January 21st, 1919, and it starts with two events. The first event is the creation of the first Doyle, which we discussed in episode four, but it also started with the ambush at Solo Headbed. We'll come back to the Solo Headbed ambush later in this episode, but it is considered to be the first attack the IRA launched on the British, and that explains some of its fame. Before we go into that, though, I want to talk a little bit more about what we didn't cover in our Doyle episode, and that would be the the resting return of Eamon de Vera on the Irish political scene. You may remember from our episode 4 on the Doyle that Eamon de Valera was currently in Lincoln Jail, and so when the Doyle was first convened, Cathal Broda served as the chairman because everyone assumed that de Valera would be president. So in February of 1919, de Valera decides that he wants to escape from jail because things are accelerating rapidly and he, he's stuck in jail. He can't really control what's going on. So he comes up with a plan. So while in jail, de Valera was working in the prison chapel. And while he was there, he noticed that the clergyman had the set of keys. And he knew that there was a door in the exercise yard that if he could open that door, he could make his escape. So what he does is that he makes an impression of the key in a wedge of wax, and then he has to figure out how to smuggle it out. So to smuggle it out, he enlists the help of Sean Milroy, who draws a seemingly harmless postcard showing a drunken man trying to use a large key to unlock a teeny keyhole. The large key is an actual drawing of the key that Dev needs to open up the door. The IRA made a, made a copy of the key, and Fintan Murphy smuggles it in within a fruitcake. So Dev tries the key, but it doesn't fit the lot, so he needs to let the IRA know. So again, Sean Milroy draws a new postcard, this time of a Celtic knot, but this time in the shape of a key, and sends it back to the IRA. Fintan Murphy smuggles the key in again in a different fruitcake, and it still doesn't work. So they send in a third cake with a blank key and files to make it the right shape. So on February 3rd, Dev, Milroy, and Sean McGarry use the new key to unlock the door and make their way to the gate where Michael Collins and Harry Bolin are waiting for them. Collins has a key of his own that he's been filing to fit into the lock of the gate. When he puts his key in, though, it snaps in half. 
So Dev uses his own key to push the remains out of the lot and unlocks it on his side and runs out. As they're escaping, it's said that Bolin dresses Dev up in a, in a fur-lined coat and they walk arm in arm so as not to draw suspicion. Dev's escape was about 90% luck and 10% planning. The security at Lincoln Jail seemed to have been really laxed if he was able to have three fruitcakes sent to him with keys hidden inside. His escape is one of those things from the Anglo-Irish War that inspires the romantic side, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's famous. And it's also a huge political victory. After Dev escaped, he had to go into hiding for a little bit, but at some point Collins wanted to have a huge parade where Dev would, you know, march into Dublin and be welcomed by the mayor. And then the British found out and the doll said, no, we're not doing that. Because once the British find out and we go through with it, there's a chance of a confrontation and, and high high casualties. And Collins was furious and he thought it was like, it was similar to when Daniel O'Connell canceled his, his mass meeting at Lom Tar. And I think it illustrates that at this point, the IRA and the doll are not ready yet for a violence, even though Solo Head Bed had just happened. Once Dev escapes and he's allowed to come out of hiding, he calls the doll again. So the first ministry, they all resign. Dev is named president. He creates his own ministry. And then he does two things that we haven't talked about yet that I think are monumental for the Anglo-Irish War. So Sinn Féin um, had a policy where they would ostracize members of the, the RIC. Um, so Dev makes that Doyle policy. And Ronan Fanning, in his biography, makes a really interesting argument that by doing that, Dev paves the way for the violent confrontations that the IRA will have with the, with the RIC. And like we talked about in episode three, once you other someone, it makes it really easy to start thinking of them as non-human and being okay with killing them. And, and I don't know if that's what Dev had in mind, or it just seems like a natural continuation of we have the doll to replace the Irish parliament, we're going to have our own police force to replace the RIC. It's like a natural progression of creating a nation state. I mean, actually, the IRA would create their own police force. Cathal Brodo was made in charge of it, even though he hated the idea. And they ended up taking IRA men to serve as policemen to help um, legitimize the Doyle courts, which we've talked about before. The other thing that he does that is monumental, the Anglo-Irish War, but I don't think in the way that he expected, was that he decides that he's going to go to America. So he breaks out in February. In May, Bolin is sent to America to start networking with the Irish Americans in New York, and Dev's going to follow him. This creates... I think unwittingly creates a power vacuum within the IRA. And I don't think that's what Dev meant to do. And I don't think anyone realized that was going to happen. But what happens is that when Dev leaves, I think the only person who had the will to deal with Collins and by extension, the squad and GHQ is now gone. And I don't know if Dev meant for Griffith to take his place because Griffith becomes president in his stead while he's gone. Or if he thought that Brodra would be able to handle Collins, because Brodra was already wrestling with GHQ and Collins about the oath that the IRA had to take to the Doyle. I'm not quite sure what he was thinking. I don't know even at this point, because the hindsight is 2020. I don't know at this point if he thought that Collins needed to be handled. I think that's something that um, we tend to do. We look at what happens in 1920 and 1921 and 1922, and we say, oh, well, this antagonism had been there from the start, and that's not necessarily true. But when he leaves, power vacuum is created and Collins fills it. And then Collins and Mulcahy are, are running the war, for good or bad. The other interesting thing, and I didn't realize this until the YouTube channel, um, The Irish Nation Lives, and I didn't realize this, but they point out that Collins did not create the squad until after Dev leaves for America. Dev leaves in June, the squad's created in July. And they kill their first uh, victim, I think, like July 3rd or something like that. So that's another interesting thing to note. Knowing that, knowing that it creates this power vacuum, knowing that it may have set up the, or may have furthered the antagonism between Broda and Collins and later Mulcahy, knowing that when Dev comes back, there's going to be a bit of a culture shock for him 
and he's going to add, he's going to fuel the flames of dissension within the IRA. We have to ask why did Dev go? And I won't go too into this too much because this is a podcast about warfare and not necessary politics. But I think I think Dev went for two reasons. One, we have to remember that uh, the Paris Peace Conference is still going on, and the IRA are desperate to speak at the peace conference. And so far, they're being rejected. The British are putting pressure. You know, we won't hear them. We don't want to listen to them. So Dev think that the future of Ireland lays in the hands of the Americans. And a lot of people at the time think this because of Wildrow Wilson and his 14 points. So Dev thinks that America is going to pull its weight for Ireland. So he decides that the best person to argue Ireland's case is the president of, of the Irish Republic, obviously himself. The other reason that Dev goes to America is because there is a strong Irish diaspora in the U.S., and this isn't the first time an Irish man has gone to America to ask for funds and support. Um, even in 19, 1916, we talked about this a little bit in our episode about women who fought during 1916. They would go and tell their story to gain support. So it's not it's not unusual. Dev goes because he's hopefully in America, and because, but also because I think he wanted to embarrass the British by having the president of an Irish republic, which the British say don't exist and it's not legitimate. They, he's still going to America, though. He's still being greeted in America. He wanted to speak to Will Joe Wilson himself. He was denied, so he spoke to important men in, in New York. Um, so he wanted that recognition. And to say whether it was successful or not is beyond this episode. But I think it's fair to say that while the Irish-American community within the U.S. was never united, it was more fractured after he visited than before he visited. So we mentioned the creation of the Doyle, we mentioned Dev's escape, and now Dev is going to America. What was the IRA itself doing during this time? As we mentioned in our episode 5, Organization of the IRA, and episode 4, about the Doyle in episode three. At this point, the IRA is trying to form itself. And that means two things. One, it means that GHQ, led by Richard Mulcahy, the chief of staff, is trying to in enforce a modern military type of discipline and organization, whereas local commanders are trying to lead a guerrilla war. Although that's not what they realize. They don't realize that's what they're doing right now. They're just trying to do something, right? Doing something is better than doing nothing. So what happens during 1919 is that while GHQ is telling local units, you know, don't take, don't overtax yourself, don't do anything crazy, let's try this peace process thing, let Dev go to America, let Childers go to Paris to try and speak at the peace conference, let the Doyle, you know, do its thing, local commanders are getting really frustrated with GHQ and a couple of them take their own initiative. We're going to talk about three different attacks. We're going to talk about the ambush at Solo Headbed. We're going to talk about the ambush at Fermoy, and then we're going to talk about the assassination attempt of Lord French, because I think those three attacks illustrate some of what the IRA is experimenting with and illustrate some of the some of the tactics that are going to be the norm during 1920. So starting with uh, the solo headbed ambush. So as I mentioned before in this episode, January 21st, the doll is, is formed. The same day, a group of men in Tipperary attack a British cart full of explosives. Why did this happen and how did this happen? So the leader of this ambush was um, Seamus Robinson, Dan Breen, and Sean Tracy. Seamus Robinson was an IRA man who believed that doing something was better than doing nothing. And he was very fed up with GHQ at this point, because even back in 1918, he was arguing that they should attack, 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 attack. What else are we doing? Draining his dull, drilling his dull. What the hell? And GHQ kept telling him, no, 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 no. According to Charles Townshend's book, the, Re the Republic, the fight for um, Irish independence argues that Seamus wanted to attack the British before the Doyle formed or the same day as the Doyle formed because he wanted to force the Doyle's hand. 
he wanted them to accept that violence was the only way to fight the British. So he gets eight men together. They have one rifle, which is a Winchester repeater and an odd collection of pistols. And they lay in a ditch and they wait for hours for this cart to show up down the road. And they're waiting and they're waiting and Robinson is getting nervous because what if it doesn't show? His plan's a failure. What happens then? Finally, the cart shows up and the plan was if there were two commanders, they would try to halt the cart before shooting. If there was more than two, they would attack. So it looks like there's more than two, so they open fire and they end up killing two British constables. Constables James McDonnell and Patrick O'Connell. They didn't have any casualties of their own and they managed to capture the explosives a couple of days later, the same group of people, Robinson, GC, and Breen, have to rescue one of their own from prison. So Sean Hodian is a man from Tipperary. He got arrested by the British soldiers. He's on a train on the way to jail. So what they do is that they rush the train at Knock Lawn Railway Station. They kill two British officers and they save Sean Hodian and they get the hell out of there. In response to the attack at Solo Headbed and the rescue of Sean Hodian, the British named South Tipperary as a special military area. Robinson responds by saying that if there's any officers in Tipperary, they're going to be executed. But GHQ doesn't support that order, and they're just like, what the hell are you doing? So that pisses Robinson off even more. Robinson, Treacy, and Breen have to get the hell out of Tipperary, so they run to Dublin, where GHQ is. Collins is a little bit more understanding of what they did. GHQ is furious, and it becomes really awkward because the three stay in Dublin throughout the rest of the war, and they actually support um, the squad in a number of assassination attempts. There's a lot of bad blood between Robinson and GHQ because of this, and he's one of those typical IRA commanders who are almost as suspicious of GHQ as they are of the British because they think that the GHQ um, is disconnected and not committed and maybe even a little bit cowardly. Which is an unfair accusation. As we talked about in episode 5, GHQ was just trying to deal with a political body that was not as comfortable with the amount of violence as some of the other local commanders were. Um, they were trying to deal with a populace that was non-committal, especially in 1919. And they were also very aware of the lack of supplies, the lack of arms, and just the lack of discipline their units had. Solo Headbed's claim to fame is that it's the first attack of the Anglo-Irish War. It's also an example of some of the ambushes that we would see later in 1920 and 1921. But there, after Solo Headbed, there are a couple of small attacks, and there's a lot of pressure put on the, the RIC. Once Dev says they need to be ostracized, and they slowly retreat from vulnerable barracks. They start concentrating in more urban areas. Their morale starts plummeting. A lot of the members, I mean, all the members of the RIC are Irish. They joined the group at the time because it was a good steady paycheck. You had some prestige that you wouldn't have if you were just, you know, a common an Irish person, you were enforcing law and order, you were helping the community. That changes in 1919 because of the IRA, but you really don't see concentrated action against the British until September, the Fermoy ambush. So even though the RIC are feeling pressure, the IRA are not attacking them in any coordinated or organized manner at this point. That changes on September 7th when Liam Lynch leads an attack against 15 British soldiers. So September 7th, we're in Fermoy, Cork. There are 15 British soldiers that are on their way to a church service at a Methodist church. And then all of a sudden, from the hedges, 15 IRA men jump out, led by Liam Lynch. And they um, end up killing one soldier, Private William Jones of the 2nd Battalion, Keene's Shropshire Light Infantry. Um, Lynch himself was wounded, but he survived. The IRA didn't lose anyone, but they were able to capture 15 rifles. Following that attack, 200 British soldiers attack and loot the town as retaliation. 
On the same day as the Fermoy ambush, the 8th Battalion of Cork, Number 1 Brigade, attacks a British patrol at the Slippery Rock near Kulavodkid, capturing several rifles and bicycles. The difference between these two attacks and Solo Headbed is that these attacks targeted milita- British military men. So Solo Headbed was just an ambush on a cart to get explosives. Fermoy was a planned attack against British officers to specifically kill those officers and intimidate the rest. It is um, really, I think, too, the first time that Lynch gets to exhibit some of his skills as a guerrilla commander. So Liam Lynch is maybe one of the most efficient officers I think the IRA have. And then he becomes a bit of a tragic figure during the um, Irish Civil War. Some people actually say that the war started with this attack because of its tactical nature and because it's kind of like the small rock that precedes an avalanche. Because after this, um, especially in like in January and February of 1920, you're going to see a large slew of attacks like this. So it's a hairbrainer of things to come. Finally, we have the assassination attempt of Lord French. So this attack was um, organized by Collins and carried out by the squad. Robinson, Breen, and Tracy also part in this attack. The plan was that Lord French was supposed to be traveling in a three-car convoy through so Robinson and Breen and a couple of others, they lay behind a bunch of hedges on the left road out of Phoenix Park and they wait for his cars. Um, they were told to ignore the first car and just focus on the second and third car, but it turns out that French was in the first car. As the cars drive by, they jump out and they fire several shots and they throw a couple of hand grenades. The, no one on the British side was hurt. French was fine and the Irish lost one of their own, Martin Savage. And I think even Lloyd George kind of laughed off the uh, assassination attempt. Even though it was a failure, I think it's an important moment for the war because starting in 1920s, when we're going to see this tit-for-tat assassination game that goes on in Dublin, and it's going to get really violent and really bloody, and it's going to culminate in in Bloody Sunday in November 1920. This also isn't the first time that the Irish go after really high value targets. Like Lord French was basically the military dictator of Ireland at this point, except that he had no power because the, the British wouldn't commit to martial law in Ireland, but they wanted the problem solved. I need to do a later episode about the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries and the, and the English strategy towards Ireland, but it wasn't the best and coordination was terrible and French felt like he never had the full confidence that he needed to win the war. But he was still a high value target. And the fact that the Irish decided to just kind of launch this attack against him, I think again speaks to the audacity of the IRA, but also maybe not the greatest. In some ways it could be a great strategic sense because if you cut off the head of the leader of the British army, maybe the British army falls apart. But it could also be bad strategic sense because if you do kill the military dictator of Ireland, you give the British the permission to just come down on you like a ton of bricks. And that was something that GHQ had in mind, particularly when they were trying to control the local units. And I think we see a hint of some of the issues that Collins and the squad introduced to the Anglo-Irish War and what Mulcahy and the Cosgrave administration have to deal with after Collins dies and after the... um, the Irish Civil War is resolved. So 1919 ends with the IRA starting to feel its way into guerrilla warfare. They're starting to discover the tactics that will and will not work. We've already seen assassination attempt on the British. Um, Collins will continue that into 1920s. The British at this point, I think the reaction is befuddlement and hesitation. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, they're still dealing with the end of the World War One. You still have the Paris Peace Conference to worry about. You've still got American relations to worry about. They have troops in the Middle East. I don't think, yeah, Lloyd George is quite invested in the Greek Civil War yet, but he's going to be invested in that in a little bit. They're very distracted. 
And this doesn't seem like a huge problem. See, the problem with Ireland, I think, from the British perspective, is that they're always in rebellion. So you never really know when you need to react and when you just need to let them tire themselves out, basically. And I think that they're still in a bit of denial that the Doyle is a legitimate threat to their power and authority in Ireland, that the IRA is a legitimate threat to their military forces. They do lose confidence in the RIC, especially as the RIC starts abandoning vulnerable barracks. And so they decide that they're going to create a special task force of non-Irishmen to help police the, um, Ireland, and they're going to be known as the Black and Tans. And so we'll talk, we'll talk about them in the next episode. For the IRA and the Doyle, 1919 is a mixed year. They have some successes politically and militarily. Really, it's a year where they can set the groundwork for 1920. So that's it for now. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find our episodes on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as on Spotify, iTunes, Doodle Play, and SoundCloud. Also follow us on Twitter at AOASIM. ASYM warfare. Until next time, wash your hands, stay inside, practice social distancing, and stay safe.